Lord, as we come to you now, we thank you that you're a good and generous God who loves to give all that we need. And we do pray that you would give us from the riches of your scripture, instruction and guidance, comfort and correction, blessing, and most importantly, your presence with us. Lord, please teach this to us. And may we leave with something in our back pocket, whether it's for now or for further into the future, something that's going to help us live wholeheartedly for you, whatever the pressures and whatever the opposition. Ask all of this in your name. Amen. Amen. So we're in this series on the life of King David, looking at him through a different interaction with a different character each week. And today we come to David and Saul. So I'm going to recap quickly kind of where we've been to get us up to the point of Saul's big introduction and one central chapter, which details a really interesting interaction where we see lots of David's heart for God. But the people of God, the people of Israel, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Jacob uh, changes his name to Israel. So the people of Israel, the people who are following God, um, rejected God's desire that they didn't have a king. They wanted to be like all the other nations who had a king, a military figure who could lead them into battle. And they said, no, we want to be like everyone else. So we want a king, God. And God, even though he knew that wasn't for their best, gave it to them. Even though that was a rejection of God as their king, God allowed them to have it. And it made me think today even of those who reject God, who don't want God in this life. And God honors that decision, doesn't he? God doesn't force himself on the Israelites. He doesn't force himself as their king. He gives them another one. And he kind of treats our people who don't want to follow him today in the same way. God doesn't force himself to be their king like he doesn't force himself to be anyone's savior. God allows and dignifies our own decision Those who don't want him in this life, he won't force himself on in the next. Just as, even though this wasn't the best decision for the people of God, he said, okay, have a king. And the people soon come to realize that having a king was a sin in itself. The desire for a king, not the desire for God to be their true and only king, was a a deviation from his plan. But it says that for the sake of God's great name, God will not reject his people. That's 1 Samuel 12, verse 22. God urges them to serve him wholeheartedly, to turn away from their useless idols, false gods that would achieve nothing for them. It's interesting, isn't it, that God didn't want them to have a king, but gave in to their request. And even when they came to realize that it wasn't right, he said, I'm not going to abandon you. I'm not going to come up with another plan. I'm not going to reject you and claim another tribe as my own. And the good news for us is that that's how God treats our sin now, isn't it? Those of us who know and love him but go on in unhelpful patterns of living and thinking, who do things that aren't God's best. He doesn't reject us or abandon us. But he says, for my great name's sake, I'll be faithful to you. I'll forgive you. I'll give you the grace to make a better decision next time, to conform our lives more fully to his, for his glory. So Saul is uh, anointed as king over the Israelites. And in Saul's first battle as king, like Adrian said last week, the king is supposed to be the one that leads you into battle. In the first battle that happened under Saul's reign, they hid in caves. 
Saul was beset with fear, quaking, it says. And then he goes on to start making some really crazy decisions. There's one point where he wants to kill his own son because he ate honey when a decree had gone out that they shouldn't eat anything, and Jonathan hadn't even heard of that. Saul starts to make some crazy decisions. And then he disobeys God's command out of the fear of the people in front of him. God tells him to do something very direct and very concrete, and Saul decides to do something different out of fear. And so God rejects him as king. He says, this isn't the right person. This isn't the one that should be king over the Israelites. And it even says, and this is fascinating to think through maybe at another point, that God regretted the decision. I didn't know God could regret his own decisions, but he almost believed in Saul too much. Believed that Saul maybe could do it, and Saul wasn't up to the task. But God regretted the decision. And then we get to Samuel anointing David to be king later on, but anointing David for the task, which Jason took us through a couple of weeks ago, and you can listen back to online on our website or YouTube or any podcast channel. And David does what Saul should have done and leads the people into battle, confronting Goliath like Adrian focused on last time. Goliath, who didn't just pose a big uh, physical challenge as a giant, but posed a challenge to the name and the renown of God, saying that we're better than you. If If we defeat you, then your God is kind of implicated in that. And Saul doesn't like the fact that everyone loves David. David's the one that defeated Goliath. David's the one that led them into battle when he should have been. And the people start to sing, you know, um, songs about how Saul slain thousands, but David's tens of thousands. And Saul starts to go a bit mad, thinking all the adulation and the honor that should be focused to me as king is now being given to David, this small, younger boy, much younger than me, but he's got something that I don't, and the people see it. And Saul starts to go a bit mad in this spiral, seeing the one that God has anointed and seeing the difference that it makes when God's presence is on someone and they believe in him wholeheartedly. Saul continues down this spiral, growing in envy, because whatever David did succeeded, and basically whatever Saul did, didn't. Saul's jealousy quickly turned to malice. On numerous occasions, you can read it all through the middle of 1 Samuel, Saul tries to kill David with spears, with armies. He tries to chase him down to capture him, and David gets away every time. There are a couple of occasions in chapters 18 and 19 where the picture is painted of Saul going around his house with a spear in his hand. And at the same time, David is in his house with a lyre in his hand. A lyre is like a U-shaped harp, basically, like a kind of proto-guitar, I suppose. Now, what on earth are you doing walking around your house with a spear? Spears are for the battlefield, right? You should be out there, there with the spear, not in here. And it's like Saul's almost this little boy dreaming of the battle, but not having the faith to go into it. He's playing with the toys that are meant for a battlefield, like they're domestic And all the while that he's plotting and scheming and getting angry, David's there in worship with his lyre in hand, like he has done for years and years before on the fields when he was a shepherd boy. The sheep were asleep and he was playing worship to God. The picture's painted of Saul using this instrument in the wrong way and David using his instrument 
in the right way. Saul plotting for battle, whereas David gives himself to worship. And we know already, don't we, which one of those wins out. Worship comes through every time. David's knowledge of God, grown on those hillsides, continued even though he's being persecuted now. Worship wins out every time. Saul continues to seek to kill David, the Lord's anointed, and uh, out of jealousy for his success. He doesn't like that David's got a pure character, that his motives are right and true, and he doesn't like, ultimately, that he understands God. He's known him for many years. At the end of chapter 19 of 1 Samuel, we see that Saul sends people to capture David, to do his work on his behalf, I suppose. But they're filled with God's presence even as they get near David and Samuel and they start to prophesy. So he sends some more people to carry on the job and capture them and they get filled with the Spirit and start to prophesy. And then he says, well, I'd better go myself then, hadn't I? And he goes and he gets near Samuel and David, the people of God, filled with the presence of God. And Saul himself is filled with God's presence and starts to prophesy. It becomes a kind of joke, you know, could God even be with him? But he, he was. And the sad thing I see here is that this is another opportunity when Saul could have relented. It's another opportunity where he could have said, okay, I've not followed God wholeheartedly, but this person is doing, and I give my backing and my support to them. I'm not going to chase them down and try and kill them. Saul was filled with God's presence. He started to prophesy, but still after this, he carried on on his destructive path. Even in the midst of being so hardened against God and against the one that God had anointed, Saul was softened, but he didn't let it transform him completely. He didn't let this bring him to the point of repentance, of turning around. And I find that so sad that he wasn't able to. But I do find it comforting to know that people who come against God and God's people today will be given opportunities to relent. They will be given opportunities to turn around. And I pray that if any of us are in the same situation, that those people will do quickly. Because God is a God who wants justice. He wants righteousness. He wants people to follow in his way properly. And he will give those who oppose it time to relent, time to turn around, time to repent. If only they will take it. There's so much more that could be said through these chapters, but I want to focus in on 1 Samuel chapter 24, which I'm going to read for us now as this sort of climactic event between the relationship of David and Saul. 1 Samuel 24, beginning at verse 1, says, After Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told, David is in the desert of En Gedi. So Saul took 3,000 chosen men from all Israel, and set out to look for David and his men near the crags of the wild goats. He came to the sheep pens along the way. A cave was there, and Saul went in to relieve himself. David and his men were far back in the cave. The men said, This is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. Then David crept up unnoticed and cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Afterwards, David was conscious stricken for having cut off a corner of his robe. He said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed. 
or lift my hand against him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. With these words, David rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul. And Saul left the cave and went his way. Then David went out of the cave and called out to Saul, My Lord, the king. When Saul looked behind him, David bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. He said to Saul, Why do you listen when men say, David is bent on harming you? This day you have seen with your own eyes how the Lord gave you into my hands in the cave. Some urged me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not lift my hand against my master, because he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, look at this piece of your robe in my hand. I cut it off the corner of your robe, but did not kill you. Now understand and recognize that I am not guilty of wrongdoing or rebellion. I have not wronged you, but you are hunting me down to take my life. May the Lord judge between you and me, and may the Lord avenge the wrongs you have done to me. But my hand will not touch you. As the old saying goes, from evildoers come evil deeds, so my hand will not touch you. Against whom has the king of Israel come out? Whom are you pursuing? A dead dog, a flea? May the Lord be our judge and decide between us. May he consider my cause and uphold it. May he vindicate me by delivering me from your hand. When David finished saying this, Saul asked, Is that your voice, David, my son? And he wept aloud. You are more righteous than I, he said. You have treated me well. But I have treated you badly. You have just now told me of the good you did to me. The Lord gave me into your hands, but you did not kill me. When a man finds his enemy, does he let him get away unharmed? May the Lord reward you well for the way you treated me today. I know that you will surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hands. Now swear to me by the Lord that you will not cut off my descendants or wipe out my name from my father's family. So David gave his oath to Saul. Then Saul returned home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. David is given the opportunity to harm Saul, to kill Saul if he wants, and he chooses not to use it. He's given the chance to remove this person that's coming after him and has tried to harm his life multiple times. This is also the person that stands between him becoming king or not, now at least. But he chooses not to harm him. He cuts off a piece of his cloak almost to, to prove that he could have done it, to show that it was possible for him. But even this causes him to be conscious, conscience-stricken for doing something to, to harm in a, in a small way the one that the Lord has made king over the people. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. David says, it's not for me to wrestle this out of Saul's hand, but to wait for God in his timing to bring about what he so chooses. In the middle section of what we've read, we see that David is so confident in his right standing before God that he says, judge me. He's so self-aware of what he's done against God, but what's already been forgiven, that he says, I know my motives, I know they're pure, 
let God judge between you and me. I know that he's not going to find anything on me that I've not already confessed. He knows what he's done, but he's confident that God can and will deal with Saul in the way that only God can. David knows that it's not his job to punish anyone. Punishment, vengeance, judgment only belongs in the hands of God. And so David invites judgment on himself, knowing that he'll be found to be in the right. And crucially, he leaves judgment, he leaves vengeance, he leaves wrath in the hands of the only person that can handle it rightly, God himself. And then the end of what we've read, David's tenacity, his purity, his confidence in God causes Saul to relent, to see his own wrongdoing and to see David's righteousness before God, to see that David acted rightly, that he trusted God. And through that, the Holy Spirit brought conviction to Saul. A similar thing happens in chapter 26. I won't read it for us. But again, David defends Saul and he criticizes those guards that are supposed to be protecting him because, again, they make his, he makes his way through their defenses. And at the end of that encounter, Saul says, I have sinned. David's purity, David's willingness to leave this in the hands of God brings Saul to the point of knowing that he's done wrong. And this was a mad king doing crazy things for many, many years, drunk on the power, but knowing that it was waning away because the presence was with David. God's anointing was on him, but even he gets to the point of saying, I have sinned. The story kind of makes its own point, but I want to just draw two headings out before we end The first heading is that what makes the difference is the presence of God. The difference between David and Saul was that God's presence was no longer with Saul because of how he'd behaved. The difference was made because David was full of God's presence. David knew God and David allowed God to know him. Think of all those Psalms that we read written by David. Psalm 139, you've searched me God and you know me. David had spent enough time in God's presence saying, God, know every bit of me. Know the parts of me that I normally try and keep away from you because I'm not proud of them. Know them and change them too. David had spent so long in the place of worship and praise that he knew what God was like. And the presence of God rested on him. And that's what made the difference. That was the thing that divided Saul and David. That was the difference between success and failure, between safety and death, between contentment and bitterness. It was all about the presence of God. And David never made a show, if you like, of the anointing that he'd received. He didn't try and rub it in Saul's face that the anointing was on him now and not on Saul. He just lived from that place and did what God asked him to do, regularly seeking him out for direction. David didn't make a show of his anointing, but he lived with integrity within it. And that drove Saul mad because he didn't have the strength of character to do that with the anointing that he had earlier received as king. For us then, what makes the difference as we approach situations this week? 
Maybe you're being wronged at the moment. Maybe there's someone over you, not a king necessarily, but a boss. Or someone senior at work. Someone influential in your family who's not doing the right thing by you. What makes the difference as you go into that is the presence of God that dwells within you. What makes the difference within that is your place, having spent time with God in worship, knowing him to be with you in that difficult place. So seek him out this week. In the quiet, solitary place, find a room somewhere in a house, close the door and go into it so that you can be with God alone. Get to know him and let him get to know you. Of course, he knows you already. But as you let him into more and more parts of your life, it'll soften you. He'll take the edges off where that's what's needed. And he'll comfort you in what's traumatic. Let God's presence soften and mold you so that his image shines through you more and more. The first thing was that what made the difference was the presence of God. And the same is true today. The second and final thing is that what matters most in life is your standing before God. What matters most in life is your standing before God. Don't let a situation with anybody else cause your eyes to move off Jesus and onto anything else. David could have wiped Saul out quickly and taken the throne, but that would have put him outside the will of God for that time. David could have shortcutted to what would eventually happen, but that would have caused him to be the master of the fate rather than God. That would have been to wrestle the situation into his own hands rather than to let God outplay it. And that would have jeopardized his standing before God, his righteousness, his purity, his holiness. Don't let a situation with anybody else change your relationship with God. Don't let it distract you. But keep your eyes fixed on Jesus, the author, the perfecter of your faith. Stay in right standing before him through the gracious gift of Jesus bought on the cross as he stood in your place and mine. David didn't let this distract him. He didn't let this consume him. He kept worshipping. He kept his lyre in hand, not taking up his spear. David could have found a way around this himself, but he didn't choose to go that way because he knew that that would be his way and not necessarily God's. Ultimately, to take things into your own hands is to take them out of God's. Now, that might be for very good reason, you think, but to take things into your own hands is to take them out of God's. And God is the only one who has hands big enough to deal with the whole world, including your situation. So again, seek him. Ask him what's going on and why it's going on. Ask him what you can do in the midst of it to stay pure and righteous, to stay in a position of holiness, not giving in to sin, which gives the enemy a foothold into your life. Pour yourself out honestly to God. This is rubbish. I don't understand why this is happening, God. I hate this injustice. He doesn't mind your honesty. He wants your heart. But then leave that place trusting God to sort the situation out. David didn't go for a shortcut. He didn't go for his manufacturing of the way forward. He trusted that God would bring the solution in the right time and in the right way. David submitted himself to God. He trusted that God saw the situation and knew the best outcome. And he knew that it had to stay in God's hand. 
Because God is the only one that's capable of bringing the right solution. St. Paul, much later on in Romans 12, says this. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Evil is here and evil will continue. God's desire is that heaven and earth would become one, that his kingdom would take over more and more of the kingdom of this earth. But until Jesus returns and we see him face to face, evil is done away with once and for all. There will be skirmishes along the way. Until heaven comes down to earth with Jesus the Son and unites them forever, there will be evil, there will be suffering, there will be difficulty, there will be injustice. Pray for God's grace to withstand it, not to repay it in kind, treating people just like you've been treated yourself. Pray for the grace to see that God's way is the way to live. Even if you think there's a solution, Choose not to act unless God's directed you to. Choose to trust him for the timing and the way. And know that he is the best defense. He is the perfect judge. He is the one that sees and sees rightly. The only person who's able to judge, to exercise wrath, to bring solution is God. And even if you've got a great idea, it won't amount to much without the blessing of God on it. So wait. And sit tight. And know that if you achieve nothing, but you've been in right standing with God, you've achieved everything. David could have been king for many more years if he'd wiped Saul out early on. Some would say, well, that would have been better, wouldn't it? A godly king over the people for longer. But David would have known, well, I got here by my route, not by God's. And that would have jeopardized his righteousness in that moment. And he knew that that was wrong. The better thing to do was to sit to wait tight, to choose to bless an enemy rather than wipe them out. And though our enemies, our adversaries, our difficulties might be different, God's urge to us is the same. Let me deal with this. Stay in the right place with me. Let me fight your battles on your behalf. Evil will persist until Jesus returns. We eradicate some of it, of course, as God's kingdom advances, but some of it will linger on. But as that happens, stay in the right place with me. Ultimately, David is an example here of not letting anything or anyone take his eyes off his Lord. The instruction, the urge, the invitation for us today is to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, not on the person that's mistreating us. The difficulty that we're facing at work, the confusion about the way ahead, the, so, the problem that we can't find a solution to is to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. To know that he is our strength and our salvation, our judge and our joy, our rescue 
and our Redeemer. David shows us what happens when we prioritize being in right standing with God and trusting that he will bring the right solution in time. David shows us what it is to bless our enemies, not to curse them. To trust that God will bring them to a point of repentance if we stay in the right place with him and don't short-circuit his plans for us.